Hello, and welcome back to the Guns on Pegs podcast. My name is George Brown, and I'm the editor at Guns on Pegs. I'm joined, as per usual, by Chris Horn. Uh, Chris, it's been a little while. <laughs> it has. I feel slightly awkward about it. <laughs> uh, I think I mean, we're all good now aren't we uh we, i think that's the important thing i'm 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 just pleased to say that i feel like i can do this again <laughs> yeah i know i mean we'd probably do owe everybody a bit of an apology an apology we've i've had lots of messages which is always nice that people are missing us but um we have kept people waiting for too, yeah, long. too long um <laughs> long story short i think it was just what what was the delay caused by basically it was you know that time of year, November, December is always our busiest time, isn't it? In at Guns on Pegs, but then we've also had just this sort of continuous flow of people being unwell, families being unwell, team members being unwell, um, yeah. COVID, flu, colds. We've just had a, a bit of a sort of perfect storm of everything, haven't we? I just had a message from someone saying they just had Novid, which is this thing that's not COVID, but it's definitely like COVID. <laughs> uh, and yeah, we, we got, we've been clobbered uh, left, right and centre. And, and obviously both of us have got kids in nursery. So like everything's been coming back. And at uh, times before Christmas, I'm so pleased it's behind us. Anyway, let's move on. It's like we're here now. <laughs> Indeed. Right. So let's crack on with it then, um, since we've been missing for so long. Um, tell us about our guest today. So uh, today we're joined by the High Sheriff of County Antrim, Northern Ireland. Uh, he's he's actually a member of the St. Moritz Tobogganing Club, uh, would you believe? So we're definitely getting on to that in a minute. Uh, but more importantly, for today's purposes, uh, he is chairman of the Irish Grouse Conservation Trust. And through his role, uh, he, along with colleagues, won a Gold Purdy Award back in 2020. Uh, so looking forward to talking about that. A very warm welcome to Peter Mackey. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. And you guys say you're nervous. I think I'm probably more nervous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're, we're very gentle. Uh, Peter, I want to know about the Samaritz Tobogganing Club. It is a... Have you, do, do you know anything about the Cresta at all? The Cresta run? Uh, a, a little bit. My uncle talks about it. He's done it. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's an amateur sport and it is uh, a luge, but f- uh, kind of head first. And the run is um, based in St. Moritz in Switzerland. And I think it's one of the fastest uh, uh, ice runs um, uh, of all. So it's faster than bobsleigh and it's certainly as fast as a lot of luge. And it's a bit like shooting. It's a lot of camaraderie. It's a lot of good fun um, uh, kind of entertaining times between January and February to beginning of March. And it's just a very exciting sport, but it's um, it's something I got um, my, some of my family did it in in, in the eighties and seventies. So I then got pulled into it, um, and I used to sleep on the kind of car parks just because I couldn't afford the Swiss rank. But it was just really good fun, and it just means you can press in the morning, <laughs> and you can sleep in the afternoon. <laughs> what kind of speeds are you hitting then when you're head hurtling down? face first well i think the good guys do about 80 miles an hour um i probably do about 40 miles an hour maybe 50 um but there are two elements there's kind of doing it from junction hut which is about two-thirds of the way up and then doing it from top which is when it gets a lot scarier and that's when you kind of are very quiet and that's when you kind of sobers you actually look down the run but if you do it from junction it's, it's something you can just have a dash in in the morning but with your chin on the ice doing 50 mile an hour, that must feel like about 150. <laughs> it, it does. It is, it is tremendous fun. There's no doubt about it. But um, <laughs> I don't think I go as fast as I used to. <laughs> so I would imagine that when you've been down the crest to run face first, um, you probably need a drink afterwards, uh, which brings us nicely on to <laughs> my favorite segment. Um, Peter, why don't you start? Tell us uh, what's that you're drinking. Well, I was going to have a kind of preamble to this one because I was going to talk to you about the hot bath, the kind of the, the drink by the hot bath after a long day's shooting. And I was going to talk about a local distillery around here, Bush Mills. And they do just this epic whiskey, which is kind of matured in acacia wood. And then I thought, well, actually, that's after the day. I thought, what am I doing during the day? It's not like during this interview. And so I thought, well, actually... <laughs> I'm going to do a bit of a shout out here because, you know, you always talk about kind of all the kind of English uh, spirits, but I'm going to talk about Bertha's Revenge. And this is a, 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 an Irish uh, a slow gin and it comes in a mega bottle with a handle so it doesn't slip out of your hands. 
and it's made down at Ballyvalan. And it's really delicious. Actually, I'm going to show you a picture of it because that's a good sized bottle. And the name Bertha, just I just like it. It's just kind of, she was an it old is. cow. <laughs> it's an old cow. She was, um, and so they named their kind of slow after that. Anyway, apart from the bottle and, and, and the, the kind of marketing, actually it drinks really well. So I got to um, hang on to this Bertha's Revenge slow gin. Oh, that's amazing. So you won't believe this. Uh, but um, I've got a bottle of that sitting on my desk. In the, uh, <laughs> uh, we they actually very kindly sent a bottle into us. Uh, that they said you might like on the podcast. <laughs> Is your bottle open or shut? Um, uh, I've I haven't had any yet, so I was saving it for the next episode. But what, what's the chances of that? It's quite a, quite a niche drink, and it and it would have been perfect to have on this episode. But I, but I chose to have another one, and it would have been mad if you and I had had the same obscure slow gin from the middle of Ireland. Unbelievable! But I'm, I'm pleased to hear that it drinks well because that 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 um, that tempts me for when I'll be opening it. It drinks well. You can be um, reassured of that. Good. So, Chris, what have you got? So, George, I have um, I've been sent another drink. You know, you, hey, you know when we started this, you always said, "Oh, uh, it's we're not getting any drinks." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so I've been sent another drink, and it's really good. Um, and so basically, it's called a Gunner. Have you ever heard of Gunner? I have heard of it. Is it a non-alcoholic drink? They do. So I've got two on my desk. Uh, they've got a Saint and a Sinner. Uh, and so basically, the, the Sinner is obviously the alcoholic one, and the Saint is the non-alcoholic one. Um, and basically, uh, it is a effervescent mix of ginger, bitters, and lime. So a classic drink. Um, but the but the sinner's obviously got a shot of dark rum in it, and it's really good. Now, it's middle of winter, obviously at the moment, um, and I can imagine myself in the summer these will disappear rather quickly. So really quite nice. I'm I'm quite impressed by it, and it comes in a can. Four and a half percent, not too bad. So, yeah, thank you to Gunner. I'm enjoying this. Yeah, very nice. Uh, Gunner, Gunners uh, have a drunk at my cricket club in the summer quite frequently by those who've got to drive home. Um, not that specific brand, but the <clears throat> you know the drink from which they've obviously t- drawn inspiration. Yeah, well, absolutely. So this is Gunner, the original. I, yeah, so they've obviously created a brand around the drink. Um, yeah, the, the non-alcoholic one I'll crack into after. Uh, but, um, <laughs> I'm sure it tastes just the same. But yeah, really good. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Gunnar. Uh, so, George, tell us what you've got. What have you come back in with? I hope it's a good one. Well, I think it is. Um, I'm feeling a bit pleased with myself because, um, as I've discussed before on this podcast, my wife is Slovak, and um, we are heading out to Slovakia uh, at the end of January, um, and I have managed to fix up a day's pheasant shooting in Slovakia for when I'm out there. So in celebration of that fact, I'm drinking a Slovakian Tokai. Oh, really? Yeah. Pudding wine. Pudding wine. I mean, it's very nice. Very nice. I've, don't, I've not had any before, um, and so I didn't really know what to expect. It's 2011. I know absolutely nothing about Tokai, but it's not like majorly sweet, um, but it's it's very, very drinkable. I love a Tokai. I've, I've had, a, had a Hungarian Tokai not long ago. Yeah, so uh, this is actually from from my sort of the end of Slovakia, the far end, which is where my wife is from. Um, but I'm actually going to be shooting at this end of Slovakia, if that makes any sense. Um, so yeah, I, it's going to be great. Uh, Peter, have you got any Tokai knowledge? <laughs> <laughs> I was I was grasping for straws then. <laughs> I couldn't think of anything. <laughs> <laughs> It's quite, it's quite niche. Uh, it's it's that's niche, good, George. I like that you've gone out, uh, gone, gone a bit sort of different on us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, look, I can't drink whiskey all the time, and also <laughs> I had a lot of whiskey over Christmas and New Year, and um, uh, I've run out. The long and the short of it, <laughs> I've run out of whiskey. Um, so yeah, uh, it's nice to have a change. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I'm very pleased with it. It's great. Good. Good. Right. So uh, over to you with your next favourite segment. 
Yes. So, Peter, the next uh, regular segment that we have is called Whose Bird Is It Anyway? And it's when we ask our listeners to write in uh, to pod at gunsonpegs.com with their shooting quandaries and queries and dilemmas and all that sort of thing. And we do our level best to help them out. We keep our correspondence anonymous to avoid getting anyone into too much trouble. Uh, And this episode's Whose Bird Is Anyway submission comes from somebody I'm going to call Leon for no particular reason at all. Um, Leon writes, Dear George and Chris, there are many different reasons why individuals go beating. For example, for a day of exercise in the countryside, to work their dogs, and for the banter and camaraderie of the beating line. However, I think people should look at beating as the most accessible way to get a day's shooting. I'm a student and go beating on a commercial shoot with a big bag, and therefore a day's shooting there is one I could never dream about participating in due to the several thousands of pounds it would cost. I carefully picked which shoot in my area to go beating on as my sole motivation is to do enough days to qualify for the beater's day so I can experience shooting on an estate of this quality. Is this bad of me? (laughs) Quality. I love this. This is a a proper proper question this yeah i like it it's very strategic <laughs> um, this one P- peter straight over to you what, what what do you think i love it it's strategic yeah. it's clever it's um it's machiavellian i think <laughs> <laughs> yes very much so i i don't know chris what do you think uh, uh i think he's bang on I, i'm putting myself back to like when i first started going beating if you knew I mean, you know, the intention to go on the beaters day, it's got to be up there, uh, no matter what someone says to you. (laughs) Surely the beaters on on that particular shoot. I think that's a perfectly justifiable reason (laughs) for choosing where you go beating. No problem at all. I mean, yeah, I've got absolutely zero issue with this. (laughs) Well, I'm on the same page. I don't think there's anything wrong with it at all. Um. I mean, it, it, you could, if you were being hypercritical, you could say, you know, maybe there's a little syndicate down the road that could do with a few more beaters. But, you know, go beating where you want to. Yeah. I mean, so so what, do you, okay, he, he's emphasised the point here about I'm a student and I go beating on a commercial shoot with a big bag. Therefore, it would, you know, cost him a lot of money to be able to do that, which is understandable. So he's picked that shoot because that's the particular shoot he wants to be able to shoot at. Yeah, well, that that's even more justifiable than just going on your local syndicate. <laughs> yeah, because it's all about variety. At the end of the day, I wrote a piece on this the other day. I... <laughs> but there's there's two elements of this because, of course, he's wanting a big bag. But in my experience, you know, at the end of the season, the bag tapers off, and then you've got the beaters' day, and they go and have a record day every single time. And I often wonder how that happens. <laughs> that's because there's 25 guns out. <laughs> and they work that just a little bit harder. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think, um, I think that the whole variety that he's getting, like he's getting a day in his diary that he would never get otherwise. And the bit that I alluded to that I wrote the other day was was saying to to shooting people, if wherever possible you can put a day in your diary that you wouldn't otherwise do, do it. And therefore, this person is able to do that without having to pay for it. Even better. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's why I'm shooting in Slovakia because every time I've been there, I've you know got every time we're in the car, I've got my nose pressed to the window, going, "Oh my god, look at that landscape! I'll bet you could push some good partridges off there or whatever." Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm sort of realizing that dream. So yeah, by like, go for it. Just go for it. Have no shame. Uh, George, are you doing a season's beating first? <laughs> no, um, <laughs> um, I, I'd have to have a conversation with my boss about whether I could go and live in Slovakia, and I'm not convinced it's uh, completely um, <laughs> logistically possible. <laughs> I, think, I think there'd be issues, wouldn't there? Yeah, there might be. Um, but <laughs> George, the biggest issue you'd have is you'd have to turn down all those invites you get in the UK, and I'd have to take them. Both of them. <laughs> <laughs> Both of them. Um, I, I do think that there's there's uh, we've had another email that I want to bring in at this point. Um, and, uh, you know, we do have an international audience for this podcast. I don't think it's uh, being arrogant to say that. Um, so we've had this email from a correspondent on the other side of the Atlantic um, named Evan, real name. 
Um, and he says, hi, guys, I'm an upland hunter in Alberta, Canada, and I was wondering if you could answer a question for me. How would you suggest someone in North America builds connections in the UK hunting community? I know I can book a shoot, but I like to hunt here with friends and would like to have some friends in the UK to go on shoots with. Cheers, Evan. So that's a completely different sort of story, isn't it? But but coming at it from coming at a sort of similar problem, which is how do you build up those connections when you're thousands of miles away and can't go beating on the local syndicate or whatever? Yeah, that's tough, isn't it? Peter, what would you do if you were Evan? I think it's open to misinterpretation when he talks about hunting um, because you might think he's on horses, um, which would be a different ball game altogether. Um, I think yeah. you know, it's got to be guns on pegs, isn't it? <laughs> oh, you can come again. Um. <laughs> so so the, the, the problem is, yes, guns on pegs allows you to get in touch with shoots, but it doesn't market itself as a sort of dating agency or a friend finder. Uh, however, <laughs> there could be an opportunity. Uh, I don't know. I, I, it seems to me like he's got to get over here. And uh, he's got to uh, he's got to get out on some days. He's got to start meeting a few people and and let this know. Yeah, it? I think it's going to be very difficult from a uh, from a, from a standing start, so to speak. However, I do have one idea, which is that uh, obviously people who have their correspondence read out on the podcast are become recipients of the most noble order of the garter and as we know the people who have uh, become members are an incredibly friendly generous kind bunch and it wouldn't surprise me if uh, somebody in our little community wasn't prepared to uh, offer an invitation up to Evan I'm not going to mention any names i'm not putting any pressure on but you know it is the kind of thing that might happen and it wouldn't surprise me if it did that's a good point um because the thing is if if evan came over and let's say let's say he just booked a, a peg on a day like you can <clears throat> we know a website that can do that but let's say <laughs> you did you would then say to that host and the other and the and the other team uh on the day Look, guys, I'd I'd love to sort of join you again or or find some other shoots. If anyone's got any days, please do consider me. Uh, you know, I'm coming over every so often or whenever he's coming over, and you'll get to know people really quickly. And and it is a very small world, but I don't know. It's it's a weird. You're almost sort of begging for your supper slightly, aren't you? Like you're <laughs> going to have to be supremely kind, bring all the gifts. Like your etiquette on the pegs going to have to be on next level. <laughs> oh yeah, you're leaving a lot of birds for your neighbours, aren't you? For sure. <laughs> <laughs> there's a very good book called how to be asked again <laughs> yes the shooting fraternity is remarkably generous though especially if they feel there may be an invitation and in return in alberta ah uh, yes. yes yes actually peter you're you've you've hit the nail on the head here we haven't gone to this point you've got to dangle the carrot uh Evan's got to sort of rock up with I uh I've got sort of you know 15,000 acres of walked up snow grouse in in Alberta and uh, you know can I come on your syndicate the answer is every time yes <laughs> in fact I feel like sending him an invitation now <laughs> there you go there you go um yeah, so Evan, I hope that helps. And, you know, um, if anybody is keen to ask Evan to come and join them on their syndicate uh, next season, um, drop us an email to pod at Guns on Pegs and we'll put the two of you in touch. Um, right. Uh, time for some controversy, Chris. Um, have we got an unpopular opinion? We have, um, except I'm not sure he's shared his opinion. So this one comes from someone that uh, George has called Gordon, uh, who writes quite simply... Uh, and in full full capitals as well, you, so you can sort of get an idea about <laughs> his his writing. Um, <clears throat> the point which angers me more and more to shoot through or not to shoot through, especially in December. <laughs> That's all he says. <laughs> mm. um, but it came through with a subject of unpopular opinion. Now we haven't discussed shooting through. I don't think. I mean, considering we're nearly up to fifty episodes, I don't know how we haven't. Uh, but but. Um, 
this is absolutely a point where people have an opinion. So, uh, Gordon, thank you for sharing. Um, the only problem is I don't know what your opinion is on it, and I'd really like to know. <laughs> <laughs> um, however, because he says to shoot through or not shoot through, especially in December, I'm guessing he's one of the people that says in December you should always shoot through because of obviously lack of daylight towards the end of the day and fitting the day in and so on. Um, Peter, what do you think on shooting through or not shooting through? I think if Gordon is a shooting through kind of guy, he obviously doesn't have a social life because (laughs) I find that by the time I've kind of shot through and then sat down for a late lunch and then poured myself that extra glass of whatever it is, and then I kind of get in the car, go home. And then my wife says, but we're going oh, out for dinner. God. And you've got to lie. And you've got to say, absolutely brilliant. <laughs> I'm there. And um, you've then got to force down this kind of delicious dinner. <laughs> and you feel like a foie gras goose at the end of the day. So even though in Ireland, our daylight is even worse than England, we tend to have one hour for lunch. Uh, and um, and um, it means that you're still in at, at, at 3.30, 4 o'clock. So you can get the day in, and even in December, you can shoot without uh, having to shoot through and then stop for lunch. You can get that lunch in. You've got to be pretty brutal with your guests. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we shot on New Year's Eve here. Um, we did a we only did four drives where we'd normally do five, and we did have an extended lunch. Uh, well, an extended elevenses, and then a big supper. But by the time we got to the last drive. Um, the birds were very much all going up to roost. Um, it was a seriously wild day. Um, but, you know, I wondered if it was even worth doing the final drive at that point because, you know, we all wanted to be inside. Um, the birds were definitely not keen on being in the cover. They wanted to be back in the pen where it was nice and warm. Um, so I think, yeah, it, it, it as you say, you've got to be pretty brutal with the timings, I think, and... Um, do we have some statistics? Just just quickly on you said something. Do you not me. think it depends? Do you not think it depends on what you're shooting? If you're shooting a pheasant, yes, they'll go roost. But if you're shooting woodcock or wild birds, they tend not to be um, quite so uh, 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 watching the clock uh, or the daylight. So you can just get that extra drive in. It, it reminds me of um, uh, George when you said. Uh, birds going up to roost i remember growing up on shoots in east anglia where birds going up to roost added that little bit of extra height on them (laughs) (laughs) uh i i I like what peter said uh because i like the outspoken nature of this unpopular opinion and uh that if you don't shoot if you shoot through that you don't have a social life or something i i i like uh, you know obnoxious comments (laughs) like that (laughs) i'm firmly on board with that peter (laughs) thanks Chris, what's your preference? Uh, I, I, I'm agreeing. I'm with I'm with Peter. Uh, so stop at lunch. Make sure that you structure the day so that you can do so. And if that means getting there a bit earlier and then starting promptly, do so. Because lunch, we go shooting to have a laugh with with, with other people. And lunch, I think, is a really important part of that. It breaks up the day, gives you a chance to reflect. Um, I think it's, I just really look forward to it. The only time... I think it can be an issue is if you have been so wet that coming inside, you know, getting you changed and all the rest of it can, can that can be a problem. Mm. But apart from that, I think the daylight thing is just a bad management of timing. And so I don't like it. Um, well, I'm afraid to tell the both of you that you're on the wrong side of public opinion. Um, we've got some some census data that uh, from a couple of years ago that says that 54% prefer to shoot, shoot through and 45% like to, that can't be right. Somebody's uh, got the numbers wrong there, but basically more people <laughs> like to shoot through than want to uh, stop for lunch. The, the 1% shoot through so they can drive home early without having lunch. And I heard I heard a good thing about the other day about, um, you know, when you're so wet at lunch and um, up in North Antrim here, we, we have often days like that. And so we have two coat days. So, and I, I thought that was quite extreme. 
And then a friend of mine turned up this weekend and he was shooting and he's from Fermanagh. He said, not only have we two coat days, we have two cap days. And I get it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I mean, yeah. uh, New Year's Eve was definitely a, a two coat oh. and a two cap day. God, New Year's Eve. That was it, bad, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it was oh. wild. I was so wet. I was wearing like a really, so I won't name the brand because it's unfair on them, but it, they got a really good jacket. <laughs> and I, up to my elbows eventually got wet. It just sort of seeped through and just climbed its way up my shirt and, you know, down your chest, having gone down your neck. And, ah, uh, yeah, that was one of those ones where you're like, yeah, I'm looking forward to the end of this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what I learned on New Year's Eve was that my coat was pretty waterproof, but not even remotely windproof. Uh, it just cut through me. It was, um, yeah, it was, it was a hell of a day shooting. It was hugely good fun, but my God, it was nice to get back inside again. Right. So, um, we need to decide if that's an unpopular, well, we don't know what his opinion was. So, okay. Are we saying that preferring to shoot through is an unpopular opinion? Um, the thing is it's unpopular on this podcast because there's two of us that agree with that. But the problem is you've just gone and ruined this unpopular opinion thing by giving us this sort of unarguable statistic. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, George, can we resurvey that thing? I don't like the idea that 54% like to shoot through. I want. I think we need to put that in the census again because uh, I would like to see that number change. Uh, anecdotally, I, I, I've never come across anyone who likes shooting through. <laughs> Well, that's, that's that settled it then. It's an unpopular opinion. Um, yeah, there you go. <laughs> okay, right then. So moving on. Um, since this is the last, uh, as it were, normal episode of season five, I thought it might be quite fun to revisit the piece of correspondence that made us laugh the most uh, in this series. Um, some of you will remember that in season five, episode three, uh US dove shooter Jeff was asking how best to deal with a fellow sportsman, Mr. Johns, who had a tendency to overestimate his ability with a shotgun. Um and slightly bafflingly, Jeff suggested that the solution might be for him to stop sleeping with Mr. John's girlfriend. Um <laughs> we couldn't at the time really understand what he was on about. And I so anyway, um we we were baffled, so we asked Jeff for a bit more detail, and he's responded and well it's not really an explanation i don't think uh in in that it doesn't shed any light on the girlfriend situation i don't think um but uh we've got an update haven't we chris yeah he's he's just gone on to be a bit more jeff hasn't he so <laughs> yes. uh there you have the glorious 12th the opening day of the grouse season here we have its pseudo equivalent the glorious 1st of september the opening day of the dove season this is cause for our group to convene several weeks in advance and scheme the coming season's hunts. Mr. Johns felt compelled to come along with us, and given that none of us have the technical acumen to remove his name from our group texts, there was little <laughs> we could do. It turns out that so far this year, Mr. Johns was simply not the burden to us which had previously been. This was due in large part to the arrival of twin girls, antecedent to the opening of the dove season here in South Texas. When the lot of us were at the aforementioned dinner some months back, he seemed quite overcome with consternation uh, regarding the possibility of missing out on a season bird hunting with us. He seemed genuinely saddened at the prospect of missing the travel, the shooting and the mirth which invariably are present on all of our outings. He also voiced concern regarding the potentially negative impact his absence might have on the overall sustainability of our very informal <laughs> shooting syndicate. It was quite touching, really. Being fathers, one and all, we assured him, and copiously so, that his dutiful place was at home with his family. <laughs> <laughs> we cited Freud. We cited Jung. We cited half a dozen <laughs> others. <laughs> we did our best to impress him upon him uh, the importance of being with his children at this stage of their development, to grasp this narrow window of opportunity to bond with his daughters, to seize this unique moment in time that will inevitably ephemerally pass in a father's life, but make a lifelong impression on the souls of his progeny. <laughs> <laughs> Mercifully, Mr. Johns bought into all this shit and he decided his time. <laughs> 
time was more appropriately spent responsibly tending to this newly acquired brace of daughters than irresponsibly sky-blasting doves that were crossing the horizon. There is a God. (laughs) Well done, Chris. You did well to get through that without wetting yourself. (laughs) That's very good. The whole thing does rather beg the question, um, whose daughters are they? (laughs) Good question. (laughs) Yes. What you'll do, you see, what you're doing here is is you're feeding Jeff like uh, bits of sort of uh, opportunity for response. Uh, so we, we're going to get more back for this, aren't we? What we actually need to know is after the end of this dove season, how good was it without Mr. Johns? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And was it any less sustainable? And did you manage to get the DNA test sorted? Yeah. <laughs> brilliant right well thank you jeff for coming back in touch with us um it's uh it's always nice to hear hear updates on these things so if anybody else is listening and they've had some advice from us uh and it has uh worked out well or badly which seems the more likely occurrence um do drop us another email um and we'll be glad to read it out again um Right, so Leon and Gordon and Evan and, of course, you, Peter, are now members of the Most Noble Order of the Garters and will shortly be in receipt of your very own set of the highly exclusive Guns on Pegs podcast Shooting Sock Garters. If you have got a shooting confession, a quandary or a query that you'd like us and our guests to help you with, or an unpopular opinion and you'd like a set of garters, drop us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com. Right then, um, so Peter... um, You've obviously been incredibly instrumental in helping the recovery of grouse in Northern Ireland. I know next to nothing about grouse shooting in Northern Ireland. Can you, and I imagine the same is true of a lot of our listeners, can you give us a potted history of grouse in Northern Ireland? If we went back 100 years, what, what was the situation like then? Well, I should probably just focus on the moor, which we, we've been working on, which is Glenwerry. And if we go back to the 1930s, 1940s, they were shooting um, 100 brace days. But in Ireland, the density of grouse has always been uh, far lower than in certainly uh, Yorkshire or or England uh, and parts of Scotland. And the bird itself is slightly different. It's slightly bigger, it's slightly heavier, um, and it's slightly paler. Um, And that really really reflects the habitat so there were viable uh, moors um, in about the 1920s, 1930s. Um, but really after the First Second World War, obviously a lot of keepers um, joined up. Um, they didn't come back. And so a lot of these moors stopped being keepered. And that was probably the first nail in the coffin um, for viable moors. Um, but there have, you know, there were grouse in Ireland, simple as that. It's just um, they have been extremely um, persecuted um, over the, the, the following uh, 100 years. So, so is that because of the obvious raptors that any grouse moor would see? And what, what makes it so different? Is it just because there wasn't the effort to, to maintain the moors in the same way that you would say get in North Yorkshire? Is that why you're in the sort of, you, you found yourself in the situation you're in? It's slightly more complicated. It all, as as always, happens in Ireland. It's all about history. Uh, we had something called the, the Irish Land Acts, which really started about 1880 from memory to about 1911. I think the last one was the Wyndham Act, and that really meant that um, the bigger states had to sell um, land outside, which wasn't being farmed. Um, and this is really all because of, I suppose, potato famine and all sorts of historical reasons. Uh, but what it meant is that the sporting rights got disenfranchised from the fee simple, the freehold. And then what happened, that was fine. And I remember shooting um, in the when I was 16, so the 70s, um, around Slemish. And, you know, there was, you know, we'd have a really nice walked up day. And it was about 1975, um, the European Union brought in um, headage for sheep. And that meant you got paid per sheep. And so every single uh, sheep farmer just put as many sheep as possible on their moors because obviously there was no interest in in, in the grouse or the game birds because they didn't own the sporting rights. And overnight, it wiped out the habitat. And I remember going shooting the next year uh, 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 when I was 17, and there was nothing there, absolutely nothing. Um, And that's really, I suppose, it, it stuck in my mind 
um, about, you know, what on earth do we do? Um, and it was only much later when um, uh, 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 Lord Dunluce, gamekeeper down at uh, Glen Arm, um, reminded uh, him that they'd shot 100 brace days at Glen Arm or, or, or Glen Wherry. And, you know, we should be doing something about it. And that was really kicked the whole project off um, in about 2006. That's amazing. So, so w- when was it that they were shooting those 100 brace days? What sort of time frame are we talking between the 2006 and, and when, whenever it was? I'm just trying to look up my notes. It was, um, it was about, actually 100 brace days in the late 1950s. And when uh, Robert Luff, who was the retired keeper, um, recounted the moor in 2004, um, they only found four pair of grass wow. on a 7,000-acre moor. <laughs> So 50 years, you could decimate something of significant value by poor politics. <laughs> well, a lot quicker by the sounds of things, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. Yeah, no, it's, it's, um, and what then happened is, of course, this is just one more, but if you actually looked at Ireland as a whole, grouse then got red-listed by the European Union as um, a bird uh, 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 which, is, which is disappearing. Um, and that was really part of the reasons why we kicked in and said we've got to do something so it was the birds of conservation concern in 1999 um the um irish grouse or the grouse was then added to that list um so i was going to ask um what made you decide that it was that it needed to be you who took action to do something about red grouse populations in in northern ireland that's a really interesting question i'm not quite sure if i know the answer either um (laughs) i suppose because i'd done it uh as a teenager and i saw I saw what fun it was, you know, and saw how amazing it was. And I'd shot grouse in Scotland and, 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 and um, uh, Northern England um, and actually even in Wales. And I just thought, well, actually, we have to have a go at doing something. And it was just that window of opportunity where we had um, a group of people who were prepared to fund it, um, to start it all off. Uh, we had the sporting rights over half the ground, um, and we were able to persuade five elderly farmers um, on the other the, the, the part of the moor to contribute and join in. And so, therefore, all the kind of bits of the jigsaw just converged in a very unusual moment of time. Um, I think it would be a lot more difficult to try and do it now. Um, yeah, so so what was it that you needed to do? Um, what What were the problems that needed addressing to give the grouse a chance to come back i think it's the age old thing is that the two elements to it um uh, 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 the, the first element must be the management of the habitat um and the habitat was extremely badly degraded um, there was a lot of white grass there it was still overgrazing, um even with our partners uh, being involved um and so there was a lot of education about how we should manage this 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 upland area um, and that was part of it. And the other bit, which is you guys know so well, is all about uh, vermin control. And you've got to have a really hungry, active, energetic keeper. And they've got to really focus and really bring down the vermin. And the problem in Ireland is that you, know, you do create a vacuum. You don't have a, a neighboring estate to take the pressure off. So not only are you shooting 200 foxes or whatever it is in one year, but you'll do that year upon year upon year. Um, mm. But that has been uh, 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 the, the two main parts of the jigsaw. I think, I think what, what, what needs to come across and what, what I just want clarification on here is you're, you're embarking on a monster project at this point because it's, this isn't something that anyone else is doing. And you've mentioned partners already. Um, presumably, just, it's, it's not like any estate going, we're going to do a bit of work and we're going to try and bring a few grouse back. This was on another level uh, of engaging all sorts of people. Who were you engaging and, and, and what was the sort of setup work like required just to get you in a position where you could he- you know, head off and try and make this a reality? I think that if we'd known what the issues were at the beginning, there's absolutely we would have just finished with a very good dinner and said that was a lovely idea <laughs> and a story. Um, but you know what it's like. You start a project and you just you just get, a, get immersed and you're suddenly on this hamster wheel and it's actually quite difficult to get off. Um, but to, to make this project work, we actually 
created a charitable trust because what we wanted to do is we wanted this project to run over five or 10 years. And then we wanted to share that knowledge with other people. So other places in Ireland who wanted to, to kind of, uh, I suppose, conserve grouse or improve their habitat or their moor. So every single element we felt had to be measured. Um, and that included if we were doing any heather burning, uh, 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 um, you know, what kind of vermin control. And to put the context, so we had 10 subscribers who were, you know, just incredibly valuable and they all were friends. Um, and we had a very good uh, managing director with Adrian Morrow, and he was extremely good on the ground and a huge diplomat. And um, we then had to form a kind of a management a- 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 a kind of agreement, with it, which is called the Glenwary Conservation. Um, and involved in that, so remember that this area is an ASSI, it's an SPA, a special protected area, and an area of outstanding natural beauty. So you've got that to start off with. And then you've got to bring in, so we had to have the NIEA, the Northern Ireland Environmental Agency. We had the NI as a Northern Ireland Raptor Society, so Raptor Surveys, because, of course, we wanted to be able to converse and discuss uh, uh, about this issue of hen harriers. Then we had Queen's University doing Irish hair surveys because Irish hair was under stress. We had AFBI, so the um, the Agri-Food and Bioscience Institute, so Habitat and Vegetation Survey, and that was under Professor Jim McAdam. And that was critical because also it meant we could measure any mule burn if we were burning. And then we had the DERA um, uh, policy. Uh, um, and then last but not least, we had the RSPB, um, which is a, which may come as a surprise to a lot of people. I'm sure, But yeah. I think one of the advantages in Ireland is we're so used to having to work, uh, work together that you can actually – you can work together. I mean, that, that's working together on another level. I, I, I'm sure there's lots of projects in the UK that have lots of different partners, but no wonder you you say in hindsight you would have had a good dinner and then sort of thought, no, I'm not taking this on. Uh, I mean, so 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 how did it go? Like you, you start and, and yeah, what happened next? Well. Th- well, the first issue you've got, so you've got, okay, let, let's work out the finances. So work out the finances. And then you say, oh, right, we've got to recruit a keeper. And you'll know yourself that an upland keeper is different from a lowland keeper. So you then got to persuade someone who has that knowledge. Now, keepering is, uh, especially upland keeping, is kind of a, an oral society, a kind of communication. You always have, you know, people who have their fathers, their uncles, are all keepers. And we'd lost a lot of that. So we had to find someone who's prepared to take the risk uh, to come over. So we, 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 we recruited a really guy, a good guy called Lee McManaman uh, from Scotland. And he was brave enough to come over. But you must remember also that these guys were starting a project from new for, for, for you know, in a brace on the, on, on the hill. And there was no likelihood of any shooting. So no tips. You know nothing which normally enhances, um, gosh, yeah. you know keepers kind of role. Wow, I mean that is yeah. You you don't you don't, I hadn't considered the no tips bit. That's a that's a big deal, isn't it? Um, As a keeper, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but also but but also there's only eight birds. Yeah. <laughs> like if you saw a fox, you'd be running after it in your pajamas, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, <laughs> It's eight birds, yeah. So, I mean, that's a huge battle you're facing. But what is fascinating is that as soon as you start putting the bits in places and you do need a bit of luck in terms of spring because, you know, a couple of springs, we had very wet springs or we had, you know, snow drifts and all the other bits and pieces. But when you have a good spring, it's extraordinary how numbers jump. And remember those four birds were only of a certain counted area so it wasn't probably over the whole more there would be a few more but it was still relatively tiny compared to what it should be yeah and so i mean obviously what you were doing worked um so um you mentioned that you wanted other estates other moors to to learn lessons from what you guys had been doing have you started to see other other estates sort of take it take it up and, and try and do similar things 
I think what we saw over the last uh, kind of 18 years is you have a number of um, communities that get together to say, let's kind of, you know, create or restore more. And they've all gone for funding from third parties. And actually, that's you can't do that. You've actually got to get some altruistic individuals who will support your game, your, 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 your objectives and your strategy. Because if you're just doing it to get money from the European Union or whatever, it actually doesn't work. And so I think that the first thing to do is to have a very clear uh, strategy in what you're doing. Now, in terms of pushing it out, our birds on the moor seem to be pushing out themselves, uh, much to our irritation, um, as we seem to have some very lucky neighbours. <laughs> but um, I think it's, I think at the moment it's taken a lot longer to get to the numbers that we hoped than I expected. Can you give us a plotted history of that? What, what, what has, how has it developed? Well, I think it, it's quite an interesting one if you look at um, just the grouse count. So I just look at um, the figures about 2019. So the grouse count went from three to four pair in 2007 to about 306 um, pair over that counted area. Uh, but what was really interesting, it was actually wow. the other bits, and this is where people get really interested, is the skylark and the meadow pippin obviously yeah. increased. The Irish hare population um, went from 54 up to 169. Um, we had um, our curlews. Now, that's, that's a kind of interesting one in that I think we actually, this year, um, we had... Um, that's a 69 curlew chicks from 22 broods, averaging three chicks per brood, which is actually unheard of in, in Ireland um, in terms of wow. uh, a, a, a population. Um, so really, really just amazing kind of um, upside when actually we didn't have that before. And that was all down to, to be fair, you know, we're working with the RSPB over neighboring areas and we've got beat keepers. Um, you know, we've got Merlin, who's our main keeper, and then Lawrence, Andy, Mark, and Sandy are all beat keepers. And they've really done brilliantly in just maintaining the vermin uh, at, at the appropriate levels. Um, and that's gone straight to the numbers. So I would say that it has been, I think you look at it, grouse, in, in a kind of in, in a one-dimensional way, but it has amazed me the other elements and the other up bits of the upside. And those are worth certainly worth a shout out, I think. Absolutely. For me, for me, without a doubt, that that is the success story. Uh, obviously, a surplus of grouse so that you might feel you can shoot a few is lovely, but that's the success story. And and, and surely all the partners that you had involved in the early days were quite shocked by the figures that you're able to demonstrate. Um, they were, and actually, it's it's been a kind of interesting journey because some of our partners or subscribers have dropped out. Um, so, as in terms of subscribers, um, and we've got new subscribers who really generously stepped in. Uh, but our financing is now actually in place for another ten, fifteen years. So, actually, I think we're going to see the real benefits from now on because you're starting to get the, the size, and all you need is a good spring to add to the numbers. But in terms of the, the, the harvestable kind of uh, 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 grouse, um, we thought we wouldn't be shooting for quite a few years. And I think it was after three or four years, we suddenly had enough numbers. And we actually did try it with walked up and then we went uh, over pointers. But because we're in the glens of Antrim, you've got the sea just down below us. The wind was changing the whole time. So very quickly, we went to driven. And, um, you know, within about eight or nine years, we were getting coveys of grouse going over us which, as you can imagine, just so exciting. Yeah, I can imagine on the first day, you must have just been like, oh, my goodness. It would have been tricky to shoot, surely. <laughs> well, that's a really good question, a really good point, because actually in Ireland, we, we, you know, we're obviously kind of used to kind of shooting driven birds, um, but no one, unless they go to England or Scotland, shoots driven grouse. So you can imagine, you know, we've got a lot of, uh, flack from from the keeper at the time after our first day about our, our hit rate um, and we had to raise our game quite quickly <laughs> <laughs> but i mean the thing that strikes me about this is you know on this side of the irish sea we have um a lot of opposition to uh to grouse moors in general 
but and, and people make the argument that oh well you know keepers have all these knock-on benefits for uh for species apart from grouse and that never seems to quite hit home but what you're sitting on there is an absolutely perfect example of exactly what happens when you have keepers versus what happens when you don't have keepers that and i it amazes me that i don't that we don't see it referenced more often in favor of of grouse shooting on this side of of the irc it's just incredible that it's just an absolutely black and white example I think not only that, but going back to what I said right at the beginning about um, having AFPI involved and the measurement of of the habitat, and we have had, you know, we've been burning heather as a special project, Um, and we've it's shown almost no or no degradation um, of the sphagnum mosses, and this is, you know, we've had um, Professor McAdam, uh, you know, monitoring this over the years. And so, because our mosses are far, our bogs are, 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 or moors are far wetter than in England. So, if you were shooting in in, in Yorkshire uh, in a dry summer in August, you know you almost see cracking in the um, the 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 the, the, the um, peat. But actually, with us, it would still be very wet, and therefore it doesn't have an impact. Um, and we have to, you know, we've had um, heather beetle, we've had all the usual suspects, which puts you back. But there's no doubt you've got to use these tools in order to improve the habitat. And, you know, your other option is to put windmills or, or trees on it. And windmills, you know, you know that, that affects the drainage of these bogs. And trees, well, you know, becomes a monoculture. It's so true. It, uh, it, I'm, I'm with you, George, though. It, it's kind of shocking that we're still up against some of the arguments that that we face when this is just such a black and white picture of exactly what you can do with careful management. Uh, obviously, the effort that Peter and you and the team have put in at the Irish Grass Conservation Trust is enormous. I mean, I, I, wanna, I, I can't understand. Surely there are other estates nearby that have seen you standing on a driven grouse day and thinking, oh, I'd like a bit of that, uh, and we'd try and put, put put something else into place. I mean, is it is it just money, or or is it is it something deeper than that as well? It I think it's slightly deeper because um, it's it's again it's you've got to align the the sporting rights interest with the the fee simple the farmer's interest first of all, so that's your first part of it, um, and so a lot of the sporting rights were disenfranchised um, in, in the nineteen hundreds. Uh, money is a lot of it <clears throat> because you can only make this, you know, we are a charity, so therefore we we rely on subscribers and, and uh, the generosity of Caffrey and uh, uh, Dira. Um, and that makes us, makes the whole thing work. But if you're trying to start a shooter off up from nothing, you know, you've got 10 years of no income. And the other problem is we have a lower density, so we're never going to see the, the numbers. You, know, you can't sell, you know, 200 brace day. I just can't see that happening, not in the foreseeable future. So the financials don't really work. And when we started off, I said, well, look, it's great. You know, other people will see what we're doing. The local B&Bs will do well. We'll have a farm, you know, kind of a, a, a kind of a shooting, a sporting industry, which we can develop. But it's just taken that much longer um, for all sorts of complicated reasons. And, you know, we've had tremendous support from, you know, both, you know, the, the Game, uh, Game Wildlife Conservation Trust and Basque, you know, you know, we've had, you know, we set up gamekeepers courses. We've done all sorts of things to try and educate people, to try and extend that knowledge. But I just think it just takes longer to really permeate than people realise. Mm. And you said that you've got funding secured for the next 10 to 15 years. Where do you want to get to in that time? What, where, where would you like to see it get to? Um, say, you know, by the end of the, in, in 10 years' time? That's a really good question. Um, we, we had one, you know, we obviously have a benefits kind issue. So, you know, so, but, you know we, are, we only shoot, you know, once every two or three years whenever there's a harvestable and we're not shooting big numbers. Um, but, you know, to give you an idea, we had one day's driven shoot um, in um, August or September this year, or last year, I should say. And, um, we had 70 beaters turn up and 35 <laughs> came from Southern Ireland and 35 came from Northern Ireland. And they all wanted to be there on the driven day on a driven moor in Ireland because none of them have ever done it. Now, wouldn't it be brilliant if you, know, if you could say in 10 years' time, there's another moor 
and there's another place that does it. And that's, you know, that would be the, the, the ideal. But either way, everything we've done has been measured and monitored. So there's a record here that if somebody picked it up in 10, 20 years' time, they could see a blueprint of how to get to A to B. And they could say, this could work for us or not. Hmm. <laughs> I, I assume when all those beaters turn up, you had to manage their expectations. There wasn't a shoot day at the end. Of yeah, the I was going to say they're all there for beaters day. <laughs> what, was, what was he called again? I must just um, check. <laughs> Leon. <laughs> yeah, Leon. Yeah, Leon. <laughs> um, I think um, the the thing that I, I, it almost slightly worries me this. I mean, it, it's such a good story and it's such a success story. And as you say, like this blueprint, it, you really, we really need to see others try and take this on. And it needs to be protected, doesn't it? Because it, it can be used. And it, it's such a perfect case study to show what happens at such a scale that we couldn't, well, we, we just couldn't see in the UK, in England at least. It would be so devastating to have to go through what was, what's happened in Northern Ireland to then try and prove that point. So we've got to use it. Um, I, I don't really sort of have a question on it. It's just like, my goodness, like, you know, w- what support do you need and, and what are you sort of looking for people to do? Well, it's, I think, as always, it's kind of, getting the word out, getting people to understand some of the issues. And in England, you know, grouse wars, you know, are at risk in other ways. You know, um, we have no right to roam in Ireland. We have no uh, uh, footpaths. So that that part of it is easier. Um, I think that um, there are bits of what we do which would be incredibly useful um, and, and, you know, in, in, in looking forward. Um, I think... And a project like this, you have got to be quite altruistic. And I, I remember, and, and I just kind of just take a step to one side. Uh, one of our keepers, uh, 2011, uh, we put forward for a Purdy Award. And people kept saying to me, well, you know, why are you allowing your, you know, why do you want to do this? And I said, but we want to get the word out. We want people to understand what could happen if, you do lose grass shooting. What what we've had to do to get back to you know almost a starting point, um, and it's a the big concern is that if you do well in the Purdy Award, your keeper, uh, your 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 gatekeeper gets poached, and of course he was. So um, when um, Alex um, when Alex then asked me, could he? And we got a bronze then, and he said, could we try it again? And they've just taken such a leap of faith to come over, and and you know really rebuild their or build their lives over here out of the mainstream kind of moors, of course you've got to support it. And of course, as soon as you got the gold, Alec got headhunted. But the difference is there's, there's, there's so much goodwill. He straight away organized a really good guy to come in in his place. So it wasn't as if he was kind of leaving us in the lurch. There's a lot of goodwill. And they all know what we're trying to do and they're all trying to support it. And I think that was a really interesting example of, you know, how you can support people and how you know your faith in someone will be uh, uh, returned. It, it hadn't quite occurred to me the downside of doing winning a Purdy Award. <laughs> 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 it, 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 you've, you've, you've almost explained why no one should ever enter, which is just awful. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't realise. <laughs> I didn't realize Alex had left. So, uh, so, so what's the situation now then? Is it just, you know, you've got yourself a good base to continue working forward year on year. You're focusing on all the wild birds, the ground nesting birds that are doing so well, uh, and then putting out that good news. Well, as I kind of inferred, Alec then um, introduced Merlin Becker, who had actually worked for the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust over in Scotland. And, it's as part of what we do is education. So, you know, we're having to give talks um, of the gamekeeper, especially, is going to have to, has to go to Caffrey. He's going to have to teach uh, uh, kind of gamekeeping courses. He's going to have to, you know, talk at um, grouse conferences. And so, you know, Merlin is, is, is very good at that. Um, and so it makes you realize that every, every project, the stages in the project, and if you just a little bit of luck, you get the right person for the right stage. And we have a really good guy at the moment. You know, we actually have always been lucky with the people because I think that anyone who's prepared to take the leap of faith to come to Ireland, 
either slightly mad, but they also have, they really believe in the sport and they want to make a difference. Um, and if they're on a big moor in, in, in Scotland or England, there'll be a, a beat keeper for a long time. You know, it's kind of dead men's shoes. Um, whereas here, they had an opportunity to really make a difference. Um, and that's where we were lucky. Yeah, I mean, it's an incredibly inspiring story. Um, and, you know, I with my editor's hat on, um, you know, we will do everything that we can through the podcast and through our platforms to to continue spreading the word about what you're doing out there. It's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I agree entirely. Thank you. Um, right. So I think it's probably about time we started to wrap up. Um, so, Peter, the way we like to finish our podcasts off is with a segment we call Desert Island Shooting. And we ask our guests to imagine, uh, and I don't suppose it'll be too much of a stretch of the imagination for you, that shooting is on its on its way out. Um, and you've got one final opportunity to enjoy a day, a trip, a weekend. Uh, money's no object. Um, logistics aren't a problem. You can have anybody with you and do anything. Um, what are you going to do? Where are you going to go? Who are you taking? It's it's given me a lot of kind of angst, this particular question. And I'll take you on the journey because um, it might explain it. Um, I was I was shooting Boar in France um, a, a few years ago, and there was an Austrian there. And he recounted this amazing stalk he had done shooting uh, Capacale in Austria. Um, and it happens in May. And I understand what you do is you get up extremely early in the morning um, and you, you you climb a mountain in the dark and you get up to the, the level where the capicalia are, are, are kind of the, the males are, are kind of um, chatting the girls up. And by about five o'clock, you should be roughly in position. And then you kind of wait for the males to start singing and dancing and um, or calling. And then you shoot them. And I thought, God, that's amazing. You know, it, and I remember being absolutely struck by this um, at the time. And then I thought to myself, this is the last day. Really? Is that what I want to do? You know, I could buy all the lovely Austrian kind of lederhosen and all the other kits. And it's fantastic, you know, have all the kits <laughs> and all the fun. But, you know, this is the last day. So is this going to really be right? And then I thought to myself, no, I'll tell you what I really would love to do. And, um, we always had a fe- we had a pheasant shoot here at, at Lisnor. We, we then um, twenty years ago, I um, stopped the pheasant shoot. We focused purely on woodcock and snipe, and because the woods, we've got a lot. You know, we 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 rewilded before everyone in <laughs> in England discovered the term, and so we've got a lot of rough country, let's say. And um, so I adore shooting woodcock, and we have two days of driven woodcock here, and. Because you've got no pheasants on the ground, we're only touching a bit of it, there's a lot of woodcock, and they're all migratory woodcock, and we've seen no fall off, drop off in numbers at all. So therefore, my, my, my final, my, my kind of desert island kind of um, uh, day shooting would be having some of my best mates come to stay here. Now, there's a caveat here, because I'd need someone to make sure that um, I'd need a cook, I'd need a butler. And somebody to serve drinks because it's critical on the Friday. It's critical that they stop us drinking because you know it's like Friday. <laughs> you just get overexcited, and the next day you're just so you, you can't even talk. So I want someone who could just gently just wean me off it at about midnight to say, uh, "Time for bed," and then a bit like what my wife does actually, and then. Um, <laughs> And but I want someone to just take me off. So then I go to bed, wake up in the morning, and I have a fantastic day driven. But to do that, I have to have a bit of snow on the, the glens behind us. And that brings the woodcock down. So I want a really heavy dump of snow and a lovely crisp sunny day. No 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 um no clouds and a really crisp day with about ten of my really good friends and a, my usual team of beaters here. And just have a fantastic day and then finish it with a fantastic dinner that night because I'll have a very light lunch. Obviously, we've discussed this before. One hour, <laughs> that's all you've got. <laughs> then you've got a snooze time and then, and then dinner. And that at that dinner, there'll be no one telling me to go to bed. There'll be no one 
telling me that I've, I've, I've drunk too much. And we can play a game of Frida late at night. And that would round off my uh, last day of shooting. <laughs> it's brilliant. It's one of the most detailed ones we've had so far as well. I like it a lot. Um, yeah, I think every I shoot... It. Uh, shoot lodge and uh, you know shooting pub should have uh, an employee on a Friday night whose job sole responsibility is to say no go to bed <laughs> I, I hate those people at the night before a shoot <laughs> yeah but you and I are the ones who need it more than anybody Chris <laughs> I, I'm part of that club as well <laughs> we should get together <laughs> Um, I, what I like there is um, that I can I've, I've pictured the scenery so well. The fact that you've organised the snow, the big dump of snow on the, on the tops of the mountains to bring the woodcock down, you know that's mega. I don't think we've I don't think anyone on their desert island shooting has organised a dump of snow yet. Uh, so that's good, uh, and I it'd just be lovely. Yeah, really enjoyable. amazing. Yeah, <laughs> brilliant. Well, Peter, thank you ever so much for coming and joining us. Um, it's been absolutely fascinating. Yeah, thank you, Peter. Well, thank you very much for ha- well, thank you very much for for for, for asking me. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, thank you. Great. So, before we go, as per usual, there is one final reminder that you can get your hands on a pair of the highly exclusive, highly desirable Guns on Pegs podcast shooting sock garters by sending us your shooting dilemmas for us to resolve, or by sending us your unpopular opinions, nominating a shooting hero, or just by getting in touch to let us know where you've been listening. Drop us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com and if we read it out in the next episode or any future episodes, you will qualify for some garters. We will be back very soon, I promise, uh, with the 50th episode. Um, Until then, thanks very much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.